Amen. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we twice a year do this to ourselves? I mean, really. Some of you needed that song in a special way today just because of what you're dealing with in your heart right now from losing an hour of sleep last night. It's like the entire country decides to just play a prank on each other where we all change our clocks just for fun. I don't know. I'm not trying to make a political statement. There's more than enough time for that later in the year. But I know you are tired, and so it's important for you to know that it's okay. Those of you that have coffee out there and are struggling through this, we're going to talk about something that I think is is really important and really helpful today, so I trust that we're all going to zone in together and dive into God's Word together. Before we do that, I want to let you know if you're new here, my name is Adam. I'm the senior pastor here at First Free Church. Welcome. We're so glad you are here. If you want to follow along with the message in a language other than English, you can do that. If you want to read along in any other language or over 60 different languages, all the major ones are there. You can do that at efree.org slash translate. So feel free to go there. And those of you that did not make it here and uh, ended up watching from home, you can do that as well. Just open a new tab, go to efree.org slash translate, and you can follow along with the message there if it's more helpful to you. I want you to imagine right now that it's 2,000 years ago and you are a citizen of Rome living in the city of Rome. And you, like all good Roman citizens, worship the emperor. And every now and then you go to the temple and you perform the rituals that you're supposed to do and you pray to the idols you're supposed to pray to and and you give the sacrifices that you were supposed to give. And then one day someone tells you about Jesus and how he paid the ultimate sacrifice so that you don't have to sacrifice anymore and he did all of this so that you could be made right with the one true God and that all of the gods that you have been worshiping, they're just false gods, they're not even real gods, there's nothing to that at all. And so you place your trust in Jesus. You abandon your former religion which was really, if we're being honest, just about trying to manipulate the gods of Rome into doing what you wanted. And you start to follow Jesus, the one true God. Now, every time you walk by an idol, you're disgusted by it. You're absolutely repulsed. How could you have ever bowed down to and worshiped and sacrificed to these hunks of metal and stone? Why, why on earth did you ever a part of that? It just repulses you. And whenever you go to the market, you walk by the aisle where they sell the meat that was once offered to idols and you're just sickened by it. It's, it's sad because you used to enjoy buying the meat there because it was sold at a discount, but now your grocery bill is a little bit bigger because you no longer buy that meat that was offered to idols because the thought of purchasing it and supporting idol worship and ingesting that and defiling your body with the meat that's been offered to idols, it's, it's just disgusting to you. And so you get rid of all of your idols and you get yourself as far away from that as possible and you start to connect with your new brothers and sisters in Christ and you start going to one of the home groups in the area and you're learning and growing in your walk with Jesus and every week as you gather with other Christians, one of the church leaders shares something that was passed down from Jesus or the Apostle Paul or Luke or one of the other apostles and you're learning and growing in your walk with Jesus every single day, soaking up this new teaching. You can't get enough of it. It's made a huge difference in your life too. The emptiness is gone. You feel like you're alive for the first time because of this new life you have in Jesus and getting rid of your idols and abandoning that pagan idol worship, following after Jesus, it's the best thing you've ever done in your life, and you are so thankful for how different your life is today. Now, months later, 
Your neighbor invites you over to a party and you've been to his parties before. You know how this goes. When he's having a group of people over, he likes to buy the meat that's sold secondhand from the temple because it's cheaper. And so you're really conflicted about this. I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to go and you want to reach out to him and be a good kind of testimony and witness to him, but at the same time, you are struggling with what do I do about the meat? So you don't want to go, but you do want to go, and ultimately you decide you need to go to be a good witness to him, but you're not going to eat any of the meat that is served there. So you show up to the party, and you scope out the guests, and it's a wonderful thing that happens. One of the leaders of your church home group is there at the party. That means you don't have to be alone in this. You guys can abstain together and you won't be so awkward. And maybe he even has a special way of declining the the meat that's been offered to idols so that you can kind of learn from him and, and it won't be so offensive to the host. You manage to get a spot next to him at the table. The servers bring around the trays of vegetables and and you load up because you know this is the bulk of your meal. But then comes the moment when the trays of meat are brought around. And as it gets close to you, there's a pit in your stomach. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna say? Finally, it comes up to you and, and unfortunately it hits you first instead of this other guy, so you don't get to see what, how he's gonna respond, but you just, in a sort of nervous and awkward way, decline the main dish. The server looks at you kind of weird and then passes by. And this sense of relief just washes over you. That must be the Holy Spirit you've been learning about, confirming that you made the right choice. And you start to feel good about yourself because you stood up for what was right. But then out of the corner of your eye, you see this church leader sitting next to you accept the meat. He must not know. He must not be aware. Oh no, he's gonna defile his body by, by ingesting this meat that was offered to idols and so you lean over to him as soon as the server leaves and go, hey, by the way, Barnabas, that meat's been offered to idols. And he looks at you and says, oh, good to know. And then he takes a bite. And you are mortified. Does he not know what he's doing? How could he have such a casual attitude towards something that is so wrong? How could he support the eating of this particular meat? Doesn't he understand that the purchase of this meat supported idolatry? I mean, he is basically endorsing paganism. That's what he's doing. So after the party, you walk up to him and you confront him. You say, how could you do that? I thought you were a church leader. I thought you loved Jesus. Do you not understand how serious this is? And he doesn't seem to get it. So the next morning, as soon as you can, you you rush to find the other church leaders and you explain the situation to them and they, they listen to you politely, but to your surprise, they don't immediately condemn this guy. In fact, they seem a little bit confused as to whether or not this was right or whether this was wrong, which is strange to you because it's obviously wrong. And they agree that they're going to send a letter to the Apostle Paul and ask for his advice. They've got a bunch of other questions they've been wanting to ask him anyway. So they write all this down and they send him a message, and this is essentially how we got the book of Romans. Now, I don't know if it went down like that exactly, 
But something like this happened, probably more than once, where the leaders of the Church of Rome are experiencing the situations that are not clearly written about in the Old Testament scriptures, are not clearly spoken about in the letters that they've received so far and the teaching that they've gotten from the apostles that has come to them. And so they're struggling with all these different things and wondering, how do we respond to this in a way that honors God, that follows his principles and commands for us, and yet there is no clear direction on this? What do you do, Paul, when you've got a mature believer who says it's fine to eat the meat offered to idols, and you've got a less mature believer, younger believer, who says it's not okay? It might be a little bit easier if it were the other way around. If it was the more mature believer that said, I have put away those things, I have, I abstain from those, then, then it, and the younger believer wasn't there yet, you'd be like, oh, he just needs to grow up and mature. But this is the more mature believer who is saying it's okay. And the newer, less mature believer is saying, no, that's not okay, you can't do this. And so they write to Paul and Paul responds in the book of Romans. Now this specific instance that we're going to look at is in Romans chapter 14. So if you wanna turn there in your Bibles, go ahead. Or you can go to efree.org slash Bible or in the YouVersion Bible app, you'll find the passage there as well. We're going to read starting in verse 12 of Romans chapter 14, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to look at this passage together. Let's start in verse 12. Paul says, yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person, it is wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Then you will not be criticized for doing something you believe is good, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you are doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe, is not right, you are sinning. Let's bow our heads in prayer and ask God to teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that that you would work among us today, that you would reveal places where we have maybe had the wrong beliefs or haven't been following the convictions that we should or have been judging other people. Lord, help us to live in harmony to have the unity that Paul talked about. Help us to have that kind of relationship of graciousness with each other, Lord. And and we all fail at this so often. I fail at this so often. So God, I pray that you you would use your word this morning to impact our hearts and help us to live differently so that we'll glorify you 
and be the body of Christ, the the family, the community, the people that you want us to be. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I really hope that the story at the beginning helped you to have a better appreciation of the situation that Paul was dealing with as we read through Romans chapter 14. This is a tricky situation. How do we resolve this? When you've got a more mature believer who says it's okay and a less mature believer who says it's not okay. So they appeal to Paul for his advice and I wonder if they were surprised by the advice they got back. I mean, basically what Paul is saying is you're both right and you're both wrong. I mean, that seems like an odd way to look at this. So I wanna start by trying to put it all in perspective with what we've been talking about the last few weeks here. We're in the middle of this series called Undivided where we're talking about four buckets of belief, four categories of belief that we see demonstrated in scripture. Now this is nothing new. Theologians have been doing this for hundreds of years, categorizing different types of beliefs into three or four categories. Four typically works out better. Um, There's even a book coming out in a few weeks from somebody I just noticed yesterday that is a similar topic to this where they also have four categories of belief. Now we use the labels dogma, doctrine, conviction, and preference. But there are lots of different labeling systems out there. I like this one. These are, there's nothing special about these words. There are English words to describe things that we read in Greek in the Bible, okay? So dogma, doctrine, conviction, and preference. And if you haven't been here for the whole series, I strongly recommend you go back and watch the rest of the series up until now because it will help everything make a lot more sense. But just as a quick refresher, the dogma bucket is the smallest one. It's inside of the doctrine bucket. Our dogma is part of our doctrine, but doctrine gets a little bit bigger in the amount of things that are in there. Dogma is the most important. Then we have doctrine, which all of that is inside our conviction bucket. All of that's inside our preference bucket. Those are the four buckets of belief. What Paul is dealing with here, and he even mentions it right in the passage, are convictions. He doesn't actually use the word convictions. That's our English translation, but that's what makes sense to us. So we're talking about the conviction bucket today. How do we deal with situations where the Bible, the scriptures are not entirely clear how to handle a certain situation? And many times this challenge shows up in a tricky way where it's related to something that's spelled out in scripture, but it's not exactly spelled out in scripture. So there are a lot of times where we can get tripped up because there is an aspect or a decision or or an action that we could or could not take that is somehow connected to a doctrine or a dogma, but isn't the doctrine or dogma itself. So prayer, for instance, is part of our doctrine bucket. Our statement of faith talks about the importance of prayer. But the methodology and the traditions and the structures and the programs and all that stuff that, that happen to relate to prayer are not in the doctrine bucket. There are lots of different ways to do it and we don't have that prescribed in the doctrine bucket. And so prayer itself is part of the doctrine, but a lot of the things connected to it are not. That would fall into a conviction or a preference bucket. Here's another one. Worship is a part of our doctrine. It's something that we believe we ought to do to God, not just through our singing, but through our everyday lives, every action that we have. However, a lot of the methods that we would use and styles we would use for worshiping God are not part of that doctrine. It's really easy to confuse those. To think that, well, this is what I'm used to and this is traditional for me or this is what I like better or whatever it is and to think that if you don't do this, then you're not really worshiping God. No, you're confusing the buckets. Evangelism is another one. 
Evangelism is absolutely something we should do. That's part of our doctrine bucket. The gospel itself is part of the dogma bucket. Sharing the gospel would be part of our doctrine bucket. We believe we all ought to be involved in doing that. But the method that you use, the the approach that you use to share the gospel, man, there's all kinds of ways to do that. And it's not like there's one right and and a whole bunch of wrong. That would be more part of the conviction or the preference bucket. And I think this is where a lot of great Christians really get turned around because they confuse something related to doctrine or dogma with the application or the methodology or the tradition that's connected to that doctrine or dogma. But where it gets really bad is when those people start to judge other people. Now, of course, it starts in the mind and we start to think negatively toward another person. I can't believe they do that. I can't believe, I can't believe they don't do that. Why would they not do that? Don't they think that's important? If they think that's important, then they should do it this way. Why are they not doing that? And it starts there, and then it turns into we judge other people to other people, which is called gossip. Can you believe they do that? Can you believe they don't do that? And then eventually, if we get really bold, that turns into passive-aggressive comments to that person. Well, I see you finally decided to do that. Hmm. I see you finally gave up the fill in the blank. You have no idea how many passive aggressive comments I get from people who confuse the doctrine bucket with the conviction of the preference bucket. And they make statements about different things that either they want to see in the church or don't want to see in the church or all sorts of things like that, all because they're putting the wrong, the the belief in the wrong bucket. And so we judge each other because of this. And we need to take a step back. And Paul is saying here, In in Romans chapter 14, verse 12, each of us will give a personal account to God. In other words, God doesn't need to call any witnesses. He doesn't need to bring any of us up to help you understand what you did that was right or wrong. God is the judge. He doesn't need us to do that. So stop condemning each other. God is the judge and we are not. For some reason, we have this tendency to think that, that we need to be each other's Holy Spirit. And so we see someone doing something that maybe is not clearly spelled out in scripture, but we think it's wrong. We have a logical reason for why we think it's wrong. We can kind of get there if we show some interpretation of this. And so we might judge them in our minds or bring it up to other people or or do the passive aggressive thing. And when we catch ourselves doing that, judging someone on something that's not a clear command in scripture, we need to take a step back and go, hold up. Am I trying to be their Holy Spirit? Am I trying to be their judge? Because the Bible says God is their judge and they will give a personal account to God. And we will be judged. Just because we're followers of Jesus and trust in in him, those of us who have done that, doesn't mean we're gonna miss judgment altogether. It's just a different kind of judgment. We're not judged because of the bad things we do. We're judged based on the good things we do and the quality of them. Paul says in Corinthians that it's like the works of our lives are gonna be presented before God as if they are gold and silver and wood and hay and straw and those things are gonna be put before him and set to fire and the stuff that lasts after the fire is done, that's the stuff of value. I don't think he's literally saying that our good things will be converted into those materials. I think it's an analogy meant to describe the good stuff you do in your life, it does matter. You don't do that to earn a right relationship with God, but God wants you to do good. He wants you to do good things, and the work of your life is going to be set before him, and the quality of it and the caliber of it is going to be evaluated. And so each of us will give a personal account to God, but that means God is the judge. 
And so we don't need to judge other people for what they are doing. God will take care of that. And then Paul does something amazing. He sort of turns the interrogation spotlight around and says, what about you? Why don't we stop spending so much energy on what they're doing that you think is wrong? And let's talk about you and what you might be doing that you don't even realize is wrong. He says, decide instead. So stop what you're doing and instead decide to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. It's kind of like Jesus said, stop worrying about the sawdust in your brother's eye and think about the two by four that's in your own eye. You've got your own problems to deal with and think about. So live in a way that doesn't cause someone else to stumble and fall. That might be the problem that you are having right now. In your freedom and in your liberty, are you causing someone else to stumble and fall? And here's where you might be thinking, okay, what does he mean by that? How do we live that out practically? And there's this great thing that Paul does uh, throughout his letters where he gives a general principle and he follows it up by cultural practical application. So we see this here and we're going to see it in 1 Timothy. When we get back to 1 Timothy, there will be certain times where Paul will give a general principle that is timeless. And then he's going to back it up by saying, now here's how this applies to you and your situation right now in your culture in your time period. And that's what he's going to do here. So before we do that, let's just reiterate the general principles. Number one, God is the judge. You are not. That's a general principle. That's pretty timeless. And then another one is don't do something if you know it might cause another believer to stumble. Don't do it if you know it might cause another believer to stumble. And we're going to unpack this in a little bit. Paul's going to give us this practical application. What does this look like in Rome 2,000 years ago with what they were dealing with, the food offered to idols? Here it is, verse 14. I know, Paul says, and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus. Remember, we've talked recently about how Paul was taught directly by Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. Now stop right there because at this point, if you are in the pro-idol meat crowd of the Church of Rome, you are pretty excited at what you're hearing. You've just been vindicated. He just agreed with you. Paul just sided with us and said, it's okay to eat the meat. You know, because there's this group there that's saying it's, it's just meat. It didn't change. The composition of the meat did not change when it was offered in front of the idol. In fact, I'm being a good steward. Okay? I'm using the money wisely so I can give more to the church because I'm buying the meat at a discount from the, the temple. So this is actually a good financial decision. And they put it in front of the idol, but the idol is just, it's just metal, it's just stone, it doesn't mean anything. They put some incense around it, so what? It's a little more seasoned. It's, it's prepared and ready to go. And it's a disc, what's the big deal? And they get to this point in the letter, and I, I'm telling you, I really think that there were people reading this who got to this point, and Paul says, I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus, so this is a big deal, he doesn't always say that, that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat, close the letter, we're done, thank you very much, Paul agrees with us. And then they get to this, but if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person it is wrong. What? How is that possible? How can the person who thought it was wrong be correct and the person who thought it was okay be correct? Is Paul some kind of moral relativist where, where they have their truth and they have their truth and it's different but they're both true? Is that what he's talking about here? And of course the answer is no because it's not just about the action itself. Sometimes actions can be good or bad but sometimes it's not about the action. Sometimes the action is amoral. 
There's no morality to the action itself. And sometimes the issue is actually the motive. What is the motive behind the action? Have you ever seen a kid do something they think is wrong, but it's not actually wrong? And they get all embarrassed about it and they try to hide it. And it's like, why are you hiding under the table eating grapes? Like, they were on the counter for us to eat. You don't have to hide. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to take. I'll put them back. It's like, no, it's okay. It's fine. You can have the grapes, but you can eat them at the table. You don't have to go hide. But guess what? They thought it was wrong. And so, with the wrong motive, with a sinful motive, they did something that they thought was wrong, sinned in their motive, but not in the action. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Some people believe it's wrong to eat the meat that's offered to idols, but if they do it anyway, then their motive is sinful, even if their actions are not. So Paul explains that it's technically not wrong, but if they believe it's wrong, and they do it anyway, if they're willing to go ahead and do that, thinking that it might be wrong, then that is wrong. So Paul says, if another believer is distressed by what you eat, in other words, they have that position where they think that it's gonna distress them because they think that it's wrong. And you know this, you're aware of this, they've told you about this. If another believer is distressed by what you eat, you know this, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Several years ago, Jenny and I were taking a team on a mission trip And along the way, we got to visit an Islamic mosque, a Buddhist temple, and a Hindu temple. And Jenny did a lot of pre-work on this so that we could have people from these different religions come and meet with us while we were there and sit down and explain what they believed. It was an awesome experience. And so we did this at the mosque, and we did this at the Buddhist temple, and we got to the Hindu temple, and they took us around, and they were explaining kind of what they believe about all the different Hindu gods, and they had all the idols and the shrines in there as we worked our way around. And when we got to the end of this tour, to our surprise, this was not planned, they didn't let us know about this, one of their priests came out with a bunch of bananas and walked up into the shrine that we were standing in front of and offered them to the idol in the shrine. Then took the bananas, walked back out of the shrine and proceeded to give each and every one of us a banana that had been offered to an idol. What do you do with that? I got to be honest, I never thought I would actually literally face the situation that's being talked about in Romans 14. I thought that was just, you just have to transport the principle and apply it to something else today. But I have literally experienced exactly what happened here. So we got out in the parking lot and we're talking as a team and obviously everybody's eyes are big. They're like, what do I do with this? Is it okay that I'm even touching it? (laughs) And we went to Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, which talks about this issue as well. And I shared with them basically what I'm sharing with you today. And I said, look, guys, there's nothing wrong with this banana. It's, it's food that God made. I believe, based on God's word, it would be totally fine for me to eat this. And if I were by myself, I probably would. I'm a little hungry. But I also know that there is a chance that some of you are doubting whether or not it would be okay. There is a chance that some of you have a little bit of a conviction about this and are thinking that was really strange what we just witnessed and I feel like it would be like defiling to to eat this right now after it's been offered in front of an idol. And so if I were to go ahead and eat this 
And then some of you ate it as well. And then some of you, thinking that it still might be wrong, went ahead and ate it because of peer pressure. Then what I would have been doing is sinning by leading you into sinning, not by eating the banana, but by violating your conscience, by going against what you believe to be true. You'd be doing it against your understanding that it might be wrong. And so, there was a trash can right there. I'm just going to throw it away. And so everybody else walked over and threw theirs away. Now this incident in Romans 14 and this incident at the Hindu temple that Jenny and I experienced several years ago brings up a really interesting possibility. Think about it this way. You can sin by leading someone into sin with something that isn't technically sin. You can sin by leading someone into sin with something that isn't technically sin. So we don't need to judge other people over their convictions, but we also need to be careful not to cause them to violate their convictions. You see the two sides of that coin. Just because Paul says you have freedom doesn't mean you can be cavalier about it and rub it in everybody's faces. It doesn't mean if there's someone that you know is struggling with something that you can say, oh, come on, get over it. It's fine, Paul said it's fine, here, let's do it. No, you might be leading them into sin if they have doubts about this. And Paul says if you follow this instruction, if you do what he's telling you, you will not be criticized for doing something you believe is good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, that's not that big of a deal, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you recognize those three from a bigger list somewhere? Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit from the letter to the Galatians. And he's saying that if you live your life guided by the Spirit and the the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life, it's producing good things in your life, it's going to change the way you live, even about things that aren't directly referred to in Scripture. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about the law of Moses and the law of Christ and how we are no longer under obligation to the law of Moses. And there are a few places where Paul is extremely clear about this, very explicitly states, we're not under the law of Moses. In fact, at one point he says, I don't live under the law of Moses unless I am with the Jews, and then I do so that I can bring them to Christ. But when I am not with the Jews, I don't live under the law of Moses, but I obey the law of Christ. What is the law of of Christ. What is he talking about? Well, Jesus said that the law and the prophets are all based on these two commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up everything that's in the law of Moses. He says, if you do this, it's right there. God said that when Jesus came, he would write his law on our hearts. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so what we are seeing here is an example of what it means to live under the law of Christ, to obey the law of Christ. It means that God has changed our hearts, written his law on our hearts so that we don't just want to do bad things, we actually want to do good things, the things that God wants us to do. Even when it comes to things that are not clearly spelled out in his word. That does not mean that we always do good things though, does it? Because we still have the sinful nature, we still want to do bad things. Paul wrestled with this as well. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. I have the sinful nature, but I have this new nature from God. And so I have good desires and I have God's law written on my heart and I have the spirit of God living in me that is to guide me into all truth, to help me to understand and follow the law of Christ. Even about things that are not directly written about in scripture, the Holy Spirit is there to guide us into the truth and this is how 
we follow the law of Christ. For example, let's say that you're thinking about whether or not you should post a comment online. None of you ever post negative comments online, I know, but just if you were to, let's say you were thinking about it and you type it up and it's a good one. I mean, it's gonna get them right where it counts. You know, this is gonna expose them for what they are. And you stop for a minute and you realize, I'm not sure if that's demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. And so you pray real quick and just say, God, would you reveal to me? Because I'm, I think this makes my point really well, but I'm not really sure if this is demonstrating peace and love and joy, the fruit of the Spirit. So would you give me some sense about this? And as you're doing that, you start to understand that, you know what? I think this could really be offensive to some people. I think it could even be hurtful to some people. I don't think that demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit. But then there's another side of you that goes, that, that was a really good zinger though. Like, I don't want to waste that. I feel like now that I've come up with that and it's so good, it's, it's just got to be shared with the world. And you now have a tension. Are you going to follow your sinful nature or are you going to follow what appears to be what the Spirit is leading you to do, which is to not do that because it's not part of the fruit of the Spirit? Is this loving to other people? Like Jesus said, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Is this loving to others what you are doing? And as you think about that and wrestle with that, that's how you start to determine how to follow the law of Christ. The Spirit gives us guidance and guides us into all truth, even about things that are not directly written about in the Bible, which is why Paul says, don't worry so much about the, what we eat and what we don't we eat. Live a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Spirit. If you do that, this is what's gonna happen. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. That's the goal. The goal is unity. The goal is harmony. The goal is to be undivided. Don't tear each other apart over different views on different convictions and don't knowingly lead someone to violate theirs. Paul puts it this way. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you are doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it, for you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. So there's a truth that comes out of this that I don't know if we acknowledge enough in churches, and that is this. See, and here, I'm gonna explain why we don't acknowledge it. Because we want everything to be fair. Kids want everything to be fair. They are hypersensitive to when something isn't fair. If he got something and she didn't get it, or the other way around, it's like, this is not okay, this is not fair. We want everything to be consistent across the board. What you guys can do, you guys can do, and vice versa. We want it all to be fair. But here's the truth that we see in God's word. God may actually have different expectations for you than for others. And that's a hard thing to accept. We see it all throughout scripture. We see it in the life of Samson. God had different expectations for him than everybody else. And Paul is affirming the fact that God may have a different expectation or hold you to a different standard than he does to other people, and that's okay. 
God has built so much diversity and variability into this world, and we all have different life circumstances, and it's very possible that God, through his Holy Spirit, has guided you towards some conviction and wants you to live in a certain way or do certain things or not do certain things because of how he's going to use you, because of how he wants to work through you to reach certain people or to demonstrate something or just to bring glory to him or just to see if you're willing to do it. And so God may have different expectations for you than he does for other people. And that's why it's so important to put our beliefs in the right bucket. See, God holds you accountable for your convictions, but you can't hold anyone else accountable for your convictions. This messes us up a lot. Where we get a sense of a conviction And it feels so strong to us that we start to confuse it for something that ought to be applied to everyone. I mean, if God has revealed this to me, then it's got to be true for all of you. And if we don't understand this principle, straight out of God's word, that God interacts with people differently and God has different expectations at different times for different people. Yes, there are some things that are across the board, but there are a lot of nuances of just living life and walking through life together in different cultures and different time periods where it's very, very clear God may have different expectations for you than for someone else, and he holds you accountable for your convictions, but you can't hold anyone else accountable for your convictions. That's why we have to learn to put them in the right bucket. Even when those convictions are related to something that goes in the doctrine or the dogma bucket. Let me give you some examples here. God's creation of the world goes into our dogma bucket. It's pretty hard to have a God that is a sovereign ruler who has the right to uh, judge you if he didn't create you. It's pretty hard to have a God that then is able to save you from that judgment if he's not the creator of life and has all the authority and the power and the ability to do that. So that goes in our dogma bucket. I don't think you can be a Christian unless you believe that God is the creator. Now, did God create two literal human beings, Adam and Eve, as the progenitors of the human race. Yes, I believe he did. I believe that's clearly taught in the Bible. I believe Jesus talks about it, Paul talks about it, and as part of our statement of faith, it talks about God creating Adam and Eve as if they are real people. The historicity of Adam and Eve is what it's called. Now, if you believe, and this is a big debate right now, among Christians, if you believe that Adam and Eve were actually symbolic and not literal human people because of your interpretation of the evidence and trying to figure out how it all fits together, that doesn't mean you can't be a Christian. That doesn't mean you can't still follow Jesus Christ. That's why it's not part of our dogma bucket, but it's part of our doctrine bucket. We believe in a real historical Adam and Eve. Now, let's take it one step further. How long did God take to do it? Is a day like a thousand years? Is there a gap in there? Did he create the universe and then he create the earth millions of years later so that you get the redshift and the stars? All these other things that we try to figure out, that goes in our convictions bucket. That's not a part of our doctrine bucket. We very intentionally do not have a doctrinal position on some of those other nuances. And it's really easy for people to confuse these different beliefs and lump them all into the doctrine bucket or all into the dogma bucket instead of recognizing this is related to that core belief, but it isn't the core belief and I shouldn't confuse it with the core belief. If we can figure that out, we're going to have much better conversations with each other. Here's another one. God decided to save people by sending his son Jesus to 
die on the cross to take their place, to pay for their sins, that's part of our dogma bucket, right? That's part of the gospel message. God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. That's actually part of our doctrine. Our statement of faith says that we believe God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. But if we take it one step further, does God regenerate the person so that they can believe or does God regenerate them because they believed? What's the timeline of salvation there? And that's something that we put in the conviction bucket. You can hold either of those timelines of salvation and be part of our church, a member, a leader, even an elder here. Because that doesn't go in the doctrine bucket for us. Some churches it does. But for us, that goes in the conviction bucket. We say we can disagree on that and that's okay. Should Christians be Republicans, Democrats, Independents, Libertarians, Socialists, Anarcho-Capitalists, and the list goes on and on and on. Obviously, I'm not going to answer that. That goes into our conviction bucket. Now, should our doctrine and our dogma influence our political positions? Yeah, absolutely. If those are the most important beliefs we have, everything else should be filtered by them. We certainly shouldn't take a a political position that would be contrary to our doctrine or our dogma. That wouldn't make any sense at all. Then, Then we really don't value the doctrine or dogma at all. But... All these other political decisions, a lot of them, they just, they just go in the conviction bucket. We need to be gracious about those. So here's what I hope you leave with today. There are three main things we talked about, and then I want to give you one overarching principle to walk away with. Three things. God is the judge. You are not. You don't need to be anyone else's Holy Spirit. In fact, if you find yourself tempted to do that about something that's not clearly spelled out in Scripture, the best thing you can do is instead of judging them in your mind or judging them to other people or judging them to their face is to pray and ask God about it and say, God, is this just something that's between you and them? Is this just something where maybe there's a difference or maybe they just, maybe eventually they're going to get there and you're going to walk them through that? It's not my job to go do that for them. Or maybe you want me to go ask them about it and just have a, a, a transparent conversation but without judging them. And God, if this is something that you want them to arrive at a different conclusion on, would you do that? Would you impress upon them through your Holy Spirit and guide them to that position if that's what you want for them? We should probably leave a lot more room for the Holy Spirit in our interaction with each other about the things we disagree with. That means that we're willing to walk away from a conversation and say, it's okay that we did not walk away in full agreement because it's not my job to convince them of this stuff. I'm going to leave that to God. We can talk about it. We can have a great conversation about it. We can both agree that it goes in the conviction bucket and leave saying something different, and that's okay. Number two, don't do something if you know it might cause another believer to stumble. If there's something you are aware of for someone else that might be an issue for them. Now, sometimes you're not aware, and that's, that's not the issue. The issue is not you've got to stop doing all things because all things might potentially be a stumbling block for someone. That's not the issue. The issue is you are aware of it. Paul says, this guy's at a party and he says to you, hey, this meat was offered to idols. That means obviously he has a problem with it. If you know there's a problem, don't do something that might cause someone else to stumble. Thirdly, God holds you accountable for your convictions, but you cannot hold anyone else accountable for your convictions. And then I wanna wrap it up with this one big thought. The beliefs that unite us are greater than the personal convictions that divide us. That should change the way we interact with each other. That should help us to frame our conversations better. That should help us to show the fruit of the Spirit as we talk with each other about our convictions that might be different. 
When we all understand this principle together and we all know what goes in the conviction bucket and the doctrine bucket and the dogma bucket, it helps that judgment to go away. We understand that this is a person who just like me is on a journey with Jesus, maybe a different part in that journey. Maybe their journey looks a little bit different than mine and that's okay because that's the way God has it for them. And they're being guided by the Holy Spirit and I'm being guided by the Holy Spirit and sometimes that looks a little bit differently and Paul says that's okay. So our convictions aren't something we need to be uptight about. They're not something we need to be embarrassed by or angry at each other about. This is just what it means to be a part of the diverse community, the body of Jesus Christ, brought together as a collection of difference, walking through this life together. We unite around the dogma and the doctrine. We have open and honest conversations about our convictions and our preferences. Can I pray for you right now that God will help us to do this? God, thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. Thank you for guiding us on these issues that can be so confusing and tricky for us. And I'm sure this hits different people in different ways. Uh, All of us can think of examples of the meat offered to idols. Uh, Not many of us have had that exact experience. But we all have convictions and times where we think, I'm not sure if that's okay for me. Help us to understand that in a better light today. Help us to be okay with that and recognize that you may just have some different expectations for us than you have for others. And help us to be gracious with other people when our convictions are different. Help us to encourage and build each other up to have that goodness and peace and joy, the fruit of the Spirit, even though we might have some differences about what we do and and what we don't do, Lord. Help us to learn to put the right things in the right buckets so that we can be united in harmony with each other. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.